Hello and welcome. My name is Mark Tabbath and I am a lecturer at the University of East Anglia in the School of International Development. The importance of climate inequality and ad adaptation has never been more apparent. The impacts of climate change are increasingly evident, yet action on climate change remains inadequate, both in terms of mitigation and adaptation. In 2015, now this was a landmark year, the countries agreed uh, in Paris to limit warming to well below 2 degrees Celsius while aiming for as close to 1.5 degrees Celsius as possible. Paris also set up the architecture through the nationally determined contributions, whereby progress on climate action would be reviewed every five years and encompassed this ratchet effect, whereby we would need increasing commitment within every five year window. Now this conference of the parties in Glasgow coming up is considered to be the most significant climate gathering since that agreement um, in 2015 and really presents the first opportunity to comprehensively review progress um, on climate change action. Um, now I don't think it would be too much of a stretch to say that none of the big countries are on track to meet their current obligations. Moreover, this COP, the Conference of, of the Parties, is set against the current and ongoing COVID pandemic, which has caused huge loss of life and impacts globally, as well as revealing starkly the inequalities that exist within and between countries. And it is these issues that we focus on today. But before we move into the seminar, let me now introduce our three panelists. So Celia Klepp is a professor of human geography at Kiel University in Germany. Next. We have Dr. Georgina Kandel-Kemp, who is a Senior Programme Specialist at the International Development Research Centre in Canada. Lastly, I would like to introduce Daniel Mortchain, who is a Senior Policy Advisor with IISD's Resilience Programme and Lead for Latin America and the Caribbean. If we think about the introduction and if we're to hit the target set out in the Paris Accord to try and limit the global temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius, if we are to adapt to the impacts um, that are already embedded within the climate system, and if we are to achieve the sorts of transformations required to put us on a more sustainable path, then I think we all accept that fundamental and radical changes to energy systems, food systems, I guess society as a whole are required. But recognizing those changes, you know, it's only part of the puzzle. In seeking to change our current modes of production and consumption, we've got to engage in a greater and more open dialogue about the sorts of futures that we want, about humans' relationships uh, with the world around them and about their place in the world. In essence, we need to set out, I would argue, a vision for the good life. Um, but Many of these changes are being resisted by those with vested interests who have a real stake in the current uh, production regime. And this is why I think uh, we accept that we really do need this urgent and transformative change, but how we go about that remains heavily contested. So, um, you know, what do we need to do to achieve this change and what do we need to achieve by the end of this decade, recognising the increasing urgency that um, climate change as well as other stresses is imposing upon us. Clearly, the imperative to act is there, yet this imperative to act also brings risks. So, for example, a recent paper by Siri Erickson and colleagues highlighted that adaptation interventions 
may actually reinforce, redistribute or create new vulnerabilities. And history has repeatedly shown us that all too often um, the greatest burdens are often borne by those who bear the least responsibility and also have the, you know, the most limited means to realize the changes necessary to improve things. So at a local, international, national level, the impacts of climate change do and will continue to fall most heavily on those people that bear least causative responsibility and with the least power to influence and define the paths we take as we move forward, as well as identifying the end goals that we seek. So with that in mind, could the panel share their thoughts about the risks that arise at the intersection of inequality and climate change? And this could be, for example, in terms of the need for action and who bears the cost of these actions, or through inaction and what this means for our socially differentiated world, or in the way that certain populations are excluded from and lack agency to define and contribute to actions that bring about a better future. Start with you, Silja. Um, yeah, it'd be really great to hear your thoughts, please. Um, actually, I want to link what you said uh, first, actually. Uh, um, we have to speak about this meta level and about the different framings and narratives of the whole discussion on transformation, I think, and actually then think about how to work better. Different narratives of development, progress, and a good future play a major role today in the social ecological crisis. They are crucial for our ideas about envi environmental protection, sustainability, and human-environment relations in the, in the Anthropocene as a whole, I think. I think it is crucial to make these different narratives more transparent and put them into dialogue, as you said, Mark, to, su to succeed in realizing transformation versus sustainability. These narratives, for example, can be linked to very simple questions. Is it okay to drive a big car? Is it okay to drive an electronic big car? Or is it not okay at all? and collective mobility and public transport are more appropriate today. So these narratives of progress or development for, or for a good future actually are dependent on different factors, on social and cultural conditioning. For example, where do we live, USA or Sweden, Benin or Fiji, and whether we are rich or poor in these countries but also whether we live on the countryside or in the city, for example. So they're also very much linked to the cultural milieu in which we live. Today, these narratives of progress and development are very different. I've picked up some um, to put them a bit into the picture, so to say. So for sure, we have still the very predominant narrative um, of progress as growth of the economy, especially. And yeah, again, I think this is still very dominant and probably also one of our biggest problems, maybe. Then we have the narrative of green modernization, which is very powerful today. That means the idea that we can have growth through technical progress that does not destroy nature. That underlies, for example, this narrative underlies, for example, the Green Deal of the European Union or also national economic programs, for example, in Germany. But we know from various studies that this actually never worked out. We have this uh, so-called rebound effect and um, the cars became bigger and uh, consumption has risen. So that's um, maybe not always 
the best idea, maybe. And then we have the, the very yeah, upcoming narratives of uh, progress as degrowth. Here, uh, we are explicitly arguing against growth at the primary goal of development. Our lifestyles and the idea of a good life for all should not depend on growth and resources should be conserved to the extent that they are truly preserved, preserved for future generations. Narratives regarding a good life are also another narrative in its own right. This narrative is mainly based to the concept of when we veer in South America, that we know from um, and that we borrow from South America. That's also a, a strong, very interesting movement. And um, when we is based on a relational understanding of people and their environment and understanding that does not separate nature and culture, but shows the inter interdependence and relationships. So our social natures. Um, I think we've, and I'm, I'm also exploring this often with my students, we find it surprisingly difficult to think like this. In Western countries, we are very used to this binary thinking nature and culture, and maybe also this might be one of our main problems. So we know today that these narratives are central to transformation as drivers of people and societies. But what we are often missing is dialogue. I think we need to take the dialogue on sustainability and progress to another level, bringing these narratives to light, discussing different ideas of the future, also in connection with questions of justice is crucial for just transformation. Are technical solutions and, and the electronic car really solutions? Or are, they, or are they part of a narrative that rather obscures the political implications of our social ecological crisis? Many people st still don't realize that, for example, in Germany, we actually, we actually live at the expense of people who have a much smaller ecological footprint. And this is what Uli Brandt calls an imperial lifestyle. I like this concept very much. So I think also our change, uh, our sense of justice and injustice must change here and taking these aspects into account. Um, and we have, we have to frame, I think, environmental issues also much more as political issues like we do here today, I guess, in, the in this seminar. Climate change is not caused by CO2, but by very specific actors, industries, and again, lifestyles. So also our lifestyles. We have to name and discuss them. Vested interests and the political in our different narratives of a good future. In terms of environmental justice, justice for future generation, generations, and climate justice for the global south. And I think we also have to take here um, critical scientific findings much more, much more seriously. So this is linking a bit to the vested interests. I think we have to speak much more about who is actually working against change and who is, um, yeah, for example, um, carrying out illegitimate lobbying activities. And then again, we have to put this on the floor and um, put feature this or, or um, 
um, bring this into a, into a dialogue that must be um, strong and open. And um, I think we also need a strong democracy and this dialogue for a strong democracy to initiate change. Um, and maybe from these uh, dialogues and discussions, we have also bans or restrictions that are rising. But I think uh, that's uh, fair, fair enough uh, if it's coming up in a, in a strong dialogue. So um, referring now, uh, and that's my last point, to, to adaptation. Um, these discussions must also include adaptation and how adaptation might look like. Um, I'm convinced that we need transformative adaptation approaches. That means structural change. So one of our main questions probably is, uh, how do we organize transformative adaptation? And um, my last point is actually a quote from Daniel, without transformation, without transformation adaptation is dangerous. <laughs> and I want to underline this. <laughs> Thank you. And now put my sheets away. That was just to make sure that with my German English, I, I'm fitting into this very nice seminar. Super. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, Silja. Um, well, sorry, this is a Finnish name. It's Silja. Sorry, sorry Silja. My uh, my mistake. Um, yeah, I think I think you've raised some really really interesting points there. Um, I mean, I you know I uh, I think I noted down well I noted down a lot of points, but really looking at um, calling out, identifying those with vested interests, and I guess working out how we can how we can tackle or or kind of work around them. The uh, the transformative adaptation, you know, we we have to have this transformative change to tackle the the root causes of injustice, which ultimately undermine some of the actions that we're that we're trying to take. And perhaps um, as you finish with a quote from Danielle, maybe. Maybe I could now ask Danielle for a, for either your reflections on the initial framing that I gave that I gave, or if you've got a specific um, uh, any thoughts in in relation to Celia, uh, then I would I would love love for you to share them, Danielle. Thank you, Mark, uh, and also thanks very much for for inviting me. It's really nice to be here sharing this conversation with everyone. Um, just. First, on a on couple of things, or on one point that Celia said and really, really touched me. I really liked Celia that you kind of really went head on to talk about these issues. And I think that's some of these issues around, you know, questions that you have posed, you know, this interior lifestyle and, uh, and you know, uh, the decisions uh, around the car and the, you know, the choices. I think that's something that even though I feel is so essential to the discussion that we're having today and in the, in the you know the adaptation and development it often is so put down it is so taboo in many ways it is so um really kind of disregarded it, less and less so but so little such a step-by-step -step part and I think you know it doesn't reflect the urgency of, uh, of the situation at all you know you, you see the urgency reflected a lot more in in uh, in the energy sector you know okay that's great you know but uh, and of course, still not enough. But you see that, there is, but but when it comes to the lifestyle and these kind of choices, then it changes a lot the conversation. And and what you were saying, Celia, really the cultural aspect also kind of made me think. You know, it sometimes. And I know by saying this, I might get into a, a tough territory because you know I, I wish I had half an hour to say it. But 
because I don't, I'll, you know, it'll sound more, more black and white, you know, but sometimes there's a bit of a choice between like culture and resilience, culture and remaining here and survival culture and, uh, and the suffering of others, you know, the suffering of others, maybe also of yourself, but, and I don't mean, you know, you have to negate your culture, not at all. Absolutely not, that's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying that there's choices and, and there's probably a need to identify more clearly, you know, what are, and in and, and question, ourselves and institutions to question themselves you know what is a part of really what makes you uh, yourself what makes uh, a group uh, you know what, what are the things that, that link them um, essentially and what are other things that are a bit more let's call it comfort or luxury or you know uh, a nice to have to put it so simply no so so I really that, that really resonated with me and a couple of other things I wanted to say on, on, on the question, Mark, is, uh, you know, on that issue of inequality and climate change adaptation, you know, the case of uh, the country of Chile, for me, it's a, it brings an interesting case because Chile is uh, in many ways, a, a, you know, a, a very advanced country, you know, is, for example, it's now not in the ODA list. Um, a Chilean guy there, great. <laughs> I'm seeing in the chat. And at the same time, you know, in the last couple of years, Chile has undergone some really uh, tough uh, social situations, you know, some some responses, some really strong social responses, some, I would say, and, you know, many might disagree, some really necessary a process of transformation. And um, that's, uh, so, so it highlights also the, you know, the, the, the in, in many ways, the, the advanced level of where Chile is economically, et cetera, but also the huge set of inequalities that are in, in the country. And also, you know, at the same time, this situation, even though the inequality is huge, because of this, uh, let's call it economic progress, which is of course very unequal, then uh, doing adaptation work, uh, funding adaptation work in Chile is very difficult. You know, at the moment uh, we're struggling to actually get uh, um, donors to really accept that some of the work uh, that we want to do in Chile, whether that is funded or not because of the non-ODA status, but that really is totally blind to the issue of inequality and issue of poverty. So that is like, one link that I think is important so in a way to me that, that, that tells about a story about an unwillingness of adaptation and those funding adaptation, those uh, advancing adaptation to address the structural, to, uh, uh, to address the structural challenges, to disrupt the orders, the, the, the orders that are there and that are very far from a world that is just. No? And finally, you know, this also tells us that the, the, the agendas, these agendas on adaptation are, are, the funding of them continues to be very much focused or set by Northern players, just to call it like that simply. And I think that has not, not just negative, also positive elements, you know, in a piece of work we did uh, actually recently, actually for the organization that Georgina is working for, for IDRC, uh, commissioned by them. One of the things we found uh, out in, 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 in an African context was, you know, that, uh, it is positive to bring out um, some issues or some items for agenda that wouldn't otherwise be included by some uh, governments as necessary for addressing issues around gender, social uh, inclusion, transformation, to call it broadly. You know, so it's great that these things can come in if you have a little bit of a drive, driver's seat in setting the agenda. But of course, it also has huge negative implications in terms of, okay, then who decides what's important for country ABC? Or you know why country ABC and not the ENF? So uh, of course that remains a, a, a huge obstacle there. So I'll, I'll I'll wrap it around that, Mark. Georgina, would you like to um, pitch pitch in here, reflect on what's been discussed so far? 
yeah, fascinating um, insights, Sylvia and Daniel. Um, maybe I'd like to pick on, I think what both Sylvia and Daniel are pointing out to us are a new set of responsibilities that the climate change uh, research and practice communities have in this new reality. You know, I think it's not a small thing to say that we're facing a decade of urgent climate action. You know, but five, 10 years ago, I think the climate change community was much more on the sidelines arguing for action. I, I haven't had to make that argument in a very long time. And I think we have to understand then that, that the ground has shifted under our feet and we have to move from being like we could think of not a shadow community, but a community somewhat on the on the sidelines of mainstream decision making and arguing for something to suddenly be con being confronted. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I read the news lately, I mean, every day there's a new article about buy-in for climate action at very high levels. Um, and I think that as we kind of become part of a mainstream now and action is accepted and it's going to happen, I think in the next 10 years, we're going to see multiple transitions at multiple scales, uncoordinated climate actions that are going to interact with one another in ways that we can't predict. And I think, so there I'm talking about a transition to a, a low carbon economy, globally, nationally, local scale, multiple efforts. Some of them will, will fail, some will succeed. Those will interact with shifts in food systems, with human mobility. Uh, we're going to see nature-based solutions. We're going to see disaster pre preparedness getting better, sometimes getting worse. And all of these things will happen at once. And so I think that this new reality brings new responsibilities for us as a climate change research community. And I think this is what Celia just sort of touched on and Daniel as, as well. I think we have new kinds of questions we have to ask. Um, we have to be asking in this new reality about, about justice. And what I mean there is I'm talking about procedural justice, about inclusion in, in, in decision making around climate action and, and adaptation. I'm talking about distributional justice in terms of who wins and who loses as we start to take these actions in the next decade. Um, so I do think that this justice issue is a frontier area for the climate change community. And it's because the reality has changed before our eyes and under our feet. Um, we have to ask those questions, but we have to be careful that we don't ask them in ways that prevent action. And I think this is the tricky place for us um, in this period of urgent action. We have to ask hard, critical questions that still allow action because it's still urgent. You know, so up until now, we've been saying it's urgent. We must act. And now we have to say we cannot now start saying don't act because there are so many costs. So that's a that's a difficult space. Um, and the other responsibility, this, is, this will be my last point uh, on this one, Mark, is um, we have a responsibility to, to really take integrated systems approaches to questions of adaptation. We can't look, I don't think that the climate issue can be a siloed issue anymore. I think when we were on the outside arguing for action, the climate community was necessarily siloed in a sense because it, like, it was like one issue, you know, we need to get this on the agenda. That's no longer the case. Um, and now we need to start moving into an integrated approach of understanding climate action together with biodiversity loss, together with COVID recovery. I think that's your next issue we'll talk about. These things cannot be discussed on their own anymore. And that's our responsibility, I think, to start pushing that. Super. Thank, thank you very much. Um, now, I do, I do have a few questions in follow up, but I think I'll... I'll save these and I'll, I'll move on to the next uh, the next issue around COVID as you flagged, Georgina. Um, and I, I would like to do that 
purely because I just want to give enough time for the uh, for the audience uh, who, who are listening in to have time to ask their their questions at the end. Um, if you know uh, if there if there's time coming back to it, I'll, I'll, I'll jot down I'll jot down some of these discussion points so we can always go back to them if if that's okay. Um, so. To just, I guess, uh, segue on from your from your comments, Georgina. You know, it's accepted that the short-term impacts of COVID at a global level pose a really serious threat to the achievement of the of the SDGs to the extent that global poverty could increase for the first time since 1990, and could really lead to a reversal of decades worth of progress. Um, you know, this, uh, this is supported by analysis from previous academics such as SARS, Ebola, H1N1, that have all seen the income share of higher income deciles increasing, whilst there's been lowered employment to population ratios for those with basic education compared to those with higher education. So the, the, the COVID crisis, as evidenced by, by previous pandemics, is really likely to uh, exacerbate inequality. It's going to make the situation worse in a whole, um, you know, in a whole number of ways. And the more severe the pandemic, the more severe the impact on inequality is is likely to be. And I think we all recognise the severity of the current pandemic, which you know really indicates that um, at this time where we need to have this action where we need to have this this integrated response to, to climate change when we accept that there's this real need for action um, we're going to be trying to deliver this deliver this more integrated approach when inequality is is getting worse making it harder to I guess build those broad consensus build and kind of develop these shared narratives that Celia talked about so in light of these um, what particular challenges do you think the COVID pandemic poses for our current and future efforts on adaptation? And I guess that's particularly within regard to either more vulnerable countries or populations, kind of subsets of populations within particular countries. If we come, um, if we come to you, Georgina, first, if I may. Mm. Yeah, I'll do my best on, on this one, Mark. You know, I think we're all coming to terms with what this means. Um, I don't think it's all that clear to us yet. One thing um, that I think I know is that there's not going to be any adaptation that happens outside of the COVID recovery. Um, I think at, at some points in our part, in the last year, we've thought that this will be a one-year pandemic, and now I think we think it'll be a two-year pandemic. And as we look at the vaccine rollout and the inequalities between countries, within countries, access to those vaccines. And as we come to understand that it's it's everyone or it's no one in terms of a global pandemic um, and vaccination, I mean, we're in it for the long run. I, I think this decade of urgent climate action, it will be a decade of urgent climate action in a decade of COVID recovery. Um, so I don't think we can get away from it. The specific ways in which COVID is going to interplay with efforts around climate action, um, I think this is a really important research area for the research and practice communities to come to terms with quite quickly because um, it's taken us long enough to understand appropriate adaptation in what we might have called a normal context of inequality um, between countries and within countries. And now we have this additional layer of complexity that throws in all kinds of unknowns. Um, I think that the recovery is going to be both formal with economic stimulus packages and vaccine rollouts. I think it will also be informal 
um, in term, and, and those impacts are going to be felt by the most vulnerable. So here I'm thinking about migrants. You know, we saw in India the significant impacts on migrant pop populations of the lockdown in the early stages of the pandemic. In Nepal, the return of international migrants. Um, the longer that um, the restrictions on travel go on, I think the more likely that the social and economic changes that we've seen just in the last year may become entrenched. I, I don't think we should just assume that the pandemic's going to end and everyone's going to go back to the same kinds of human mobility, for example, or livelihood strategies that, that they had before these things become cemented in culture, in practice, in how people see themselves. Um, and that only becomes more significant as time goes on. So we have just so many, and I mean, we were still trying to understand human mobility, um, or we are still trying to understand it now, and now we've got another, um, you know, uh, unknown thrown in. Um, I do think that this actually just reinforces the need for all climate action to be just and inclusive. I think we need to be thinking about like transformative, climate justice, transformative action, where we actually are able to achieve, for example, gender equality and social inclusion through the act of climate action itself, of adaptation. And this would help us respond to the COVID situation simultaneously. Um, I also think that we should not only see the COVID recovery as, as a threat and as a risk. Um, I think that there are some opportunities that we're just beginning to understand. For example, I've got some colleagues that are really looking at the ways in which um, debt forgiveness or debt relief between countries um, could be seen as a form of climate finance, which completely reimagines where that finance comes from. If it comes from within a country that thought it was paying off, you know, a debt to a more powerful country, now suddenly they have funds they control themselves. What could be done with that? Um, in terms of the COVID recovery, that's also supports, for example, adaptation or a transition towards a low carbon economy. Um, and then, of course, all of this work around building back better. We've just had a call um, and saw some really interesting proposals from around the world on um, ways in which we could tackle um, women's economic empowerment, uh, the COVID recovery and low carbon transitions in one sort of sitting. You know, what are those opportunities? So we'll begin to learn more about those, I think, in the coming years. I'll stop there, Mark, and see if anyone else has thought more than me about this. <laughs> That's uh, that, that's that's really br brilliant. I mean, one of the uh, one of the questions I was going to follow up on was around the um, you know, that the, the kind of the risk and opportunity uh, way of looking at at the COVID crisis and what that means for for adaptation. Um, so please please that you flag that. But uh, maybe if I if I come to you, Daniel, next, would you like to to share some thoughts you have either you know in relation to kind of more generally, or, or if you want to pick up on any of Georgina's initial comments. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Mark. I, I, I see it also as Georgina with the risk and risks and opportunities about it. I think that's very important. Um, you know, if, actually, the maybe the first thing that comes to my mind is a little bit more around the risk uh, because probably it's so it's so immediate, it's so out there everywhere, you know. Um, and one of the things that I felt not so optimistic about has been the yeah the, the vaccination distribution, the timing it's taking, the inequalities around it, Covax, you know that effort that um, really I you know I probably should know more to, to even mention it, but uh, the, from from as a citizen when I read about it, you know the 
what I feel is like it's, it's uh, an effort that has fallen so short of the demand and it has kind of really, it, to me, it's a bit of a reflection of this uh, inward looking inertia of, uh, of countries and of course of uh, richer countries uh, saying, you know, here we go, let's, uh, let's, let's uh, take care of ourselves, you know, and I think in that sense, the U.S. is probably the, the, the biggest uh, example where now, you know, there's a, there's, there's a surplus of vaccines enormous and people are, uh, you know, the wealthy from other parts, I think from, particularly from Latin America, those who can, you know, are even flying, there's a vaccination tourism now going there different states and states and different states of the United States are actually very welcoming. There's even like, you know, uh, embassies putting out uh, uh, the, the indication that yes, come, you know, and of course they go stay in hotels, rent cars, buy, you know, so it's uh, used as that kind of uh, economic engine that it feels so tremendously unequal, unfair, wrong in every way. You know, so I think I think of that and in in, in try to bring it to the bigger or let's say a bit more longer term or midterm thinking around climate change. You know, the UNEP report on the adaptation gap last year was saying that, the, and I think, you know, many studies do, that we're going to go past the, the 1.5 degrees Celsius, even to this UNEP report, I think, was talking about 3 degrees Celsius within uh, this century, you know, as a, a global warming, a global temperature increase, which is, a, which is huge, you know. So, it kind of, the, the, the connection I'm trying to make here is like, if, you know, in a situation like uh, this terrible pandemic, you know, uh, COVAX is, uh, symbolizes the, the global response. Imagine when we don't hit 1.5, but I don't know, three. And then what is that gonna do to the responses of countries and to all the idea that, you know, how, do, how does the, glo the, the globe respond and, 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 and the, the global North countries also respond to a worsening situation in, in global south. You know, so, you know, and, and of course you see it also in, uh, even now, you know, the, for example, the UK government uh, having cut the um, uh, funding to uh, a lot of research that in, the la in this year, you know, and redistributing funds, et cetera, but cutting uh, uh, research in ODA on adaptation, you know, for a number, a large number of projects that were happening a bit in the global south. And, you know, because of the, uh, the whole financial situation and all that. So, I mean, I'm not saying it's an easy problem, of course not, but uh, it does scare me not to think a little bit about, okay, uh, when and if, if and when the situation goes worse, then really how are the more powerful, wealthier actors going to respond to it? Are we gonna, you know, like when we hit the three degrees, are, it's, it's, the, it's the compassion that is shown up to now, however much it is or however little it is, Will that even be further reduced? No. Um, on, on on the positive, I, I do think that um, you know in in the countries where I've been working recently, particularly in South America, after or since the pandemic, you know, there's been a lot more connection made between, especially the health sector and climate change impact. So I think you know also what again what Georgina was talking about, like the need to, to work as as one. I think those silos, maybe you know, the pandemic is helping rethink. Uh, from a very sectoral approach to a more, uh, you know, further this uh, effort to think more combined and, and really understand the climate risk for, for each sector. You know? So sure, there's a, it's a mixed set of feelings, I guess. Super. Thanks. Um, thanks very much. Is there, is there anything uh, uh, you would like to add, uh, Celia? Maybe just to underline what Georgina said, and I'm sharing a lot of this thoughts and ideas that were brought up now also on, on the mixed feelings about COVID 
or actually quite negative uh, and preoccupying observations here. Um, but um, linking to something that Georgina said, um, you said uh, it's about distributional justice and uh, um, participative justice. And what I think is so nice about environmental justice as a perspective is that it's always also talking about um, justice as recognition. And this is linking mainly also to the fact that we need different knowledge sources to overcome the social ecological crisis and the inequalities especially we have that we've underlined now. And um, this is, I think, an, an extremely tough one because we are used to this Western knowledge. We are used to science as the knowledge that will save us, Western science. And it's difficult for us to, to look at other knowledge sources. But I think we definitely uh, have uh, to, to bring this, this point of justice as recognition very much up also in these discussions on inequality, just transition, and um, which knowledge do we need for, uh, for transformation. So yeah, lay people, indigenous knowledge, all kinds of different sources of knowledge. Thank you. Yeah, super. Thank you very much, Celia. I wonder, again, maybe for later, it'd be really nice to, nice to hear from you, um, possibly through the, the NJUST network, if you have any examples of how you've been able to try and bring these different different forms, this plurality of knowledge um, together to try and kind of think through or address specific problems. But I would like to, in, in the interest of progress and uh, Danielle's cat, um, I would like to, uh, yeah, I'd like to move on to the, move on to the next, um, if you like, our next discussion topic. And this was something that, that Danielle flagged in his response was around the, um, if you like, the adaptation gap, um, so we, we recognize that 2015 was a momentous year in terms of global agreements with the, the Paris Agreement and the SDGs. Um, you know, they really marked a milestone in international efforts to try and establish a uni universal foundation for ambitious action to combat climate change, but set within, a, I guess, a broader, broader goals around how the world, how the world develops to leave, um, to leave no one behind. And I think crucially within those two, those two landmark agreements was that they both recognized e each other. So um, the pa Paris Agreement established um, and recognized the, the importance of development and the SDGs recognized the importance of climate change in that they were mutually uh, constituted. Um, so, and I think one of the other notable agreements of the, of the Paris Accord was it established a global goal on adaptation of enhancing adaptive capacity, strengthening resilience and reducing vulnerability to climate change um, with a view to contributing to sustainable development and ensuring an adequate adaptation response in the context of the global temperature goals. So it enshrined um, this, this recognition of adaptation, which I guess historically has maybe been the poor, the poor bedfellow of the, of the kind of the climate change activities in terms of mitigation. Um, but running in parallel to this greater recognition of adaptation was the increasing realization of an adaptation gap. So um, if you like the difference between the expected impacts of climate change, um, how much of those could be mitigated through adaptation and the other impacts tolerated by society. And yet there's this 
if you like, gradually increasing gap about what we could achieve through those measures about what we think will happen under under climate risks moving forward. Um, so I think we'll uh, I'll direct this to you, Danielle, uh, as our uh, our final triumvirate, if you like. So if you could just maybe reflect on how best can we manage the adaptation gap in the short term, and how can we seek to reduce it in the in the longer term, and what processes exist now, uh, either an international level or a national level, to help with this? That maybe you know you could maybe reflect on um, the work that you've done there with IISD, and do you think that that they're enough. If you don't think that they're enough, what do we need to do in addition? What do we need to do instead of? Um, yeah, so quite a broad, <laughs> I realize that's quite a broad question, but your your reflections around that, that issue would be wonderful, please. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll take it a bit personal in the sense of uh, going back to what you said uh, when, when you introduced us, uh, our past experiences and, you know, my past experience before being here was with the Oxfam for a number of years where Really, a lot of the work that I was doing there was uh, very much focused on uh, local levels, you know, working with local governments, with uh, communities, whether it was on implementation of projects, for example, small-scale agriculture projects uh, that were, um, you know, that promoted uh, gender equality and women's rights, or, uh, you know, working on, uh, on disaster risk reduction and some research. And um, after really a good number of, of years uh, doing that, I was interested to to look at kind of the same issue, but uh, from a very different entry point. You know, when I was there, like the idea of ever having the opportunity to meet with a national level uh, decision maker was un you know, unheard of. I mean, maybe through campaigns, you would make some noise and disturb, <laughs> disrupt rather, but uh, you know, um, here is a whole different approach with the ISD, which hosts the, the NAP Global Network, National Adaptation Plan Global Network. It's that other kind of, a, it's, it's, it's a pity to say, but pity to say it, to, for me to say it like this, but it's kind of like the other end of the spectrum. I say pity because it shouldn't be so uh, distantiated, but I think in many ways it is, no? And I think the challenge is then to really, uh, you know, a, a, a vehicle like the National Adaptation Plan, the NAP, or the NDCs, the Nationally Determined Contributions, whether you're talking about mitigation or adaptation, is, you know, that in principle, okay, you could say in a, in a perfect world, there's a, you know, this is a, an exercise that includes all levels of governance and so on, and then produces something very nice. And, but I think in reality, the effort is often there. The, um, then at the same time, the mandate, the, the writing, the decision-making, I think uh, it's, you know, it comes from the national as the, as the name suggests, no? There's a lot of influence and a lot of uh, power held by national uh, institutions, you know? And you might say, well, that's part of democracy and all of that. Uh, but I think what I'm trying to say is that the stakeholder engagement process, the engagement there, it has to change. And here I, I, I would like to come to that article that you mentioned in the beginning, Mark, the one by, by C.D. Erickson, uh, Lisa Shipper, Catherine Vincent, I know Catherine is here and, and, and others, no? and, uh, and how, you know, I really like, it's a recent one. It's, I think, a really, it, it did a lot of research of uh, previous examples. And it comes to a conclusion that for some, you know, I put it, I put on Twitter uh, a couple of days ago that I was doing this and, and the video that uh, we taped. And, you know, uh, one of the people fed back and said, you know, I've been hearing the, I don't think she, she meant it like in a, in a, you know, like a frustrated way. You know, I've been hearing these kind of arguments for so long. And, um, 
And it made me think a little bit. Uh, and then seeing this article, I felt like, yeah, we have to somehow continue making these arguments, you know. And this article and many others, you know, show the evidence that still, you know, you can keep saying it, but as long as it doesn't change, then, you know, it doesn't mean you, you will have to stop making that argument. If stakeholder engagement doesn't move beyond uh, the way it's been done for decades and decades into doing into something a lot more meaningful, a, a lot more that translates the mandate, not just the consultation, but the mandate to other organizations beyond uh, those uh, that are, uh, you, know, you know, now the, the, the power structures, not, not just national, but also subnational and, and even local. No? If you don't really break the, break that barrier, then the problem remains, you know. In the case of, uh, of Peru, Peru has uh, last year um, started or let's say, uh, yeah, put into law the indigenous climate platform. And that is a great advance. That is really, I think, a, a breakthrough in many ways, no? Um, so seven, seven indigenous organizations are uh, part of this indigenous climate platform, ICP, and they are now really going to work closely with the National uh, Commission on Climate Change to discuss the issues, you know, from their perspective, bring indigenous uh, knowledge, practices, perspectives into the agenda. But, but still, so that's fantastic, you know, and now the question is how much mandate will the ICP actually get uh, into informing, you know, with more influence, these kind of processes, hopefully a lot, but I think it remains a question, you know, case of Costa Rica is another one that I see that they, uh, where they are using these instruments at national level energy, and you know, that's, that's very powerful, let's not deny the power that that has, no, uh, in really uh, helping change a little bit, you know, what Celia was saying in the beginning, that narrative, expanding on that narrative, we're doing a project there on really, we're working with eight artists in Costa Rica. They are producing eight pieces of art. Actually, they are now being exhibited at one of the uh, national museums in, in San Jose. And uh, the, the Minister of Environment and then the Minister of Culture, it went to the inauguration, opened that up and talked really about the importance of bringing these, you know, shifting the idea that climate change is, uh, you know, the just strictly by a physical problem, really the social aspect, bringing to it, and I think when, when national level, you know, uses their power to try to change that, I, I think that's beautiful and that's important. And similarly in Costa Rica, they're doing, you know, they're, they are working with the subnational levels, 82 cantons, to uh, understand and build capacity or strengthen capacity so that people at local level decision making have, you know, because that's the other problem. You may have a good intentions, but sometimes there's just need to understand how to, how to address build and, 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 you know, use this knowledge. So I think that it's, it's that, kind of, that kind of effort that is necessary. So I think there's very good positive examples, but at the same time, I have a, it, it's, it's, it's easy to say, it's gonna be a lot harder to do, but I feel like these instruments, uh, you know, continue to be insufficiently representative, insufficiently addressing issues of justice, you know, and, um, and yeah, I mean, it makes you say why, you know, and I think part of it is often, um, you know, the timelines are so quick, you know, in the process that I've been involved in, in app development, uh, well, of course, the pandemic then often came in the middle of many of these and then consultations became more difficult. But, um, you know, people, I think it, it's hard to find a process where people are willing to really get chaotic, get messy and say, you know what, we're going to do not just this workshop, but we're really going to try to understand. And when things come up that are uncomfortable, 
we're going to address them and spend six months on it if necessary. That I think is very, you know, understandably, but, but understandably, but not justifiably, uh, continues to be a problem. No? So I think that has to address uh, in the nature of what these uh, instruments do. The instruments should probably say it should be more criteria that in the case, well, unless there is this kind of um, thinking behind it, then it's falling short of what it should achieve. Hmm? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that, not to take more time. Thanks, Mark. Okay, that was really, uh, that was really super, Daniel. So thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> so Leah, if I, uh, if I come to you now, is there, is there anything you would like to, to kind of uh, bring in around this, this more, more general issue or in response to, to some of the thoughts that Daniel has raised? Um, I mean, we now had another debate in the chat, sorry, that happens sometimes on scholar activism and uh, how political science should be and our role as scientists. I try to, um, to also answer something um, on the background of the experience we make in the Enjust network, where we are all nearly all somehow scholar activists, of course, also practitioners, also artists. And um, yeah, we tried to, we actually really also had a panel discussion on how political should science be. And we see a real shift here, especially in Germany from saying we are neutral, also the natural science uh, colleagues to a shift versus uh, we want to interact. But then in the natural science, it's somehow different from the more reflexive knowledge um, disciplines, I think. Of course, they say, yeah, but we are the knowledge brokers and we are objective. We want to interfere, but we are these knowledge brokers that are more objective. And we say, no, for us, for most of us, all um, science is also politics somehow. And um, so, yeah, we have this very interesting, um, these very interesting and necessary uh, conversations, I think. Um, regarding what Daniel said, I think it's not only the involvement of the stakeholders, of course, very interesting to hear about this platform. Thank you, Daniel. I think it's very much also about how these projects are um, organized. Like we have a pure management culture in the development industry, how it is often called. And I think this uh, very short living, very visible projects, infrastructure projects. I'm speaking with a with a um, experience as a researcher in Kiribati, a small island development state in Oceania. And there, uh, donors love to build these huge infrastructures, sea vaults that are often falling apart a bit later because they are not maintained. They are not built in a smart way for the local environment. Um, and yeah, I mean, of course, this linking to what Daniel said, um, it has to be organized differently, like more inclusive also in terms of knowledge, but then also we need longer projects. We need projects that are much more open to, to um, soft adaptation because we all feel that solidarity is what we need for, for a resilient community. But what the donors are often financing is the, the, the sea wall of, of concrete, you know, even in a context where it doesn't make sense. So that's what I wanted to add, maybe. 
with my research experience. And I would love to say something on ontological pluralism, pluralism later and how to include this, but... Let's, uh, <laughs> let's, let's see how we go. Um, okay, G Georgina, over to you. If there's uh, anything you'd like to like to pitch in, I'm not sure I remember what the question was. Now we've gone through so fascinating. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I know it's about the adaptation gap. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll just compliment then come at it from a, a slightly different angle because I really agree with everything that um, both Daniel and Celia said. Um, you know, Catherine Vincent, who's on the line, she led a, a review earlier in the year, um, which revealed to us that about one third of African countries have had absolutely no evidence published in the peer-reviewed literature. In a, we only sampled sort of three of the major journals though, um, but it was really telling because this evidence, I mean, it's not all about research, but research and evidence forms an important part of the adaptation rationale that countries put into their applications for um, climate finance to support adaptation actions, right? So when you don't have evidence, so now, okay, so this is, this is apart from the more inclusive processes, which we absolutely need. Now I'm just thinking in terms of literally how do countries access this finance to implement actions. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And so I think as for, from the research community perspective, um, this adaptation gap issue, we do have a responsibility to research in these less researched countries. And, they, and, and, and it's just so clear. We know where those places are. And I think we tend to to stay in the places that we know and in the networks that we trust. We all do it, I do it. We need to find ways to, to, to broaden that out. Um, that's the one point I wanted to make. The other is I think closing this adaptation gap is, um, so Celia said something interesting about knowledge brokers. I think of knowledge brokers a little bit differently. I think of them as the much less objective uh, cousin of the very objective research, at least the ones I work with, which is people like the um, CDKN and South South North. And we have a project with South South North um, an organization in Cape Town, and they have a, they are working with SADC to support SADC country leads. So the ministries responsible for applying for, for GCF climate funds to support them to write those, those, those proposals. And they, and they support that through peer learning between countries. So countries that have successfully bid for climate finance, getting them in the room with like Namibia and Botswana in the same room with Mozambique, for example. And how did you get this, this proposal written and how do we get it written? And then offering capacity support. Um, I think this is really important because everything I'm hearing is that we have more than enough climate finance. There's not actually a finance issue in the adaptation gap. It's that countries are struggling with the bureaucratic, really heavy process to apply for those funds. So I think that there's, as I said before, a role for researchers to fill the evidence gaps so that countries can make the case. And then I think there's a role for research funders like the IDRC and, and, and others to fund people who are not working in that research space. So these knowledge brokers that are explicitly there to build capacity um, and to make sure that this evidence is getting to where it's needed and can be interpreted by those who need it. Um, I'll stop there on this one, Mark. Super, thanks. Thanks very much. I mean, thank, thanks to all of you for some really, really wonderful insights in relation to the, I guess, the three broad topics that I, that I introduced. Thank you all very much. I hope to see you all next week. Uh, thank you, Celia. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you, Georgina, for your time. I very much appreciate it.